Hello, it's Paul Scott here with my weekend podcast, uh, summarising what we've been talking about on Stockopedia, where I write the Small Cap Valley reports, along with Graham Neary. Uh, it's my 10-year anniversary of the Small Cap Valley reports this year, so um, it's been a labour of love. I really enjoy doing them, I must admit. Um, so I'm going to reverse the order round of the podcast this week. I thought I'd run through the companies uh, to begin with and then do a little bit of macro commentary at the end, or market, economics, whatever. I mean, as usual, we're totally overwhelmed with company news and lots of uh, fascinating news about the economy. So lots to cover this week. So launching straight into the companies then. On Monday, um, now obviously, oh, we covered 27 companies this week, Graham and I. I'm not going to cover, I'm only going to cover a few key ones here because obviously we want people to join Stockopedia and read them (laughs) rather than uh, just listening to this podcast. So um, Monday, uh, the main stock I focused on is a share that's currently actually my largest personal holding. It's a special situation called Seraphine. Ticket is Bump, B-U-M-P. Now, this one, it won't appeal to everyone. It's a micro cap, about 13 million market cap. It's higher than average risk, I would say, as well, because it does have some debt. Um, It's a special situation. The company floated a year ago. Since then, it's had four profit warnings, and it's dropped over 90%. So what the hell am I looking at it for? Well, simply, I think it's oversold. And I think it's uh, actually quite a good business. But like most things that are based uh, on the Internet, it was floated, I think, opportunistically at a much too high valuation, which is true of, I think, the the majority of floats in, in 2020 and 2021, or a large number of proportion of them anyway. They represented uh, pandemic-related demand as if it was long-term structural demand. Maybe they didn't know that themselves, but I'm being charitable there. I'm talking generally about all these internet businesses that floated in the last two years. Anyway, what's uh, bull points on Seraphine? I've already covered. Basically, I think it's too cheap. It's a very high-margin business, 63% gross profit. Uh, It sells e-commerce maternity, specialist maternity wear. So it designs bespoke uh, fashion for pregnant ladies and but also baby wear and clothing to, for for example that has little hidden flaps and zips for breastfeeding and so on it's a very specialized niche hence the high margins it's got a new cfo the one of the company's big problems i think was poor financial controls so i'm really glad they brought in a new cfo who really should be able to shake the thing up uh, shake it up and shape it up. So uh, it's the Lee Williams, the former CFO from French Connection, who I think is a very experienced, steady pair of hands. He's also worked at ASOS, so I think he knows what he's doing, and he should be able to lick it into shape fairly quickly. Now, um, two things that I like about Seraphine, particularly this week when it put its results out on Monday, was not the figures, which were not great, although it's it's still actually profitable just. Um and the outlook, uh, they've reduced the outlook again to, I think we've got to assume it's, there's probably not going to be any revenue growth in the new year. Um, but the going concern note was very uh, um, reassuring, I thought. It reassured that over the next 12, these are obviously required by the auditors. And auditors, I think, are really adding value at the moment by requiring a fairly rigorous going concern analysis 
which uh, these things are absolutely essential reading. So the going concern note basically said, even in a downside scenario, there's not going to be a problem with the bank covenants. So that's key, because I don't want Seraphine to have to do a discounted emergency fundraising, which could end up diluting shareholders by, I don't know... 40-50% potentially so that's the main risk I think is that, it is, is that it has to do a placing but there's no sign of that and the going concern note was, was pretty emphatic about that now the other thing I really like about Seraphine this week in particular is really big director buys obviously they can't buy until the results are published well immediately afterward I think on the Tuesday the results came out on Monday the director, the CEO and the chairman bought nearly 300 grand's worth of stock which is about 2% of the company in the open market. I'm not talking about share options. They've used their own money. The CEO spent nearly a quarter of a million quid. Now, that is a super bullish signal, I think. Big scale. You know, they're, they're not doing that for PR. That is meaningful director buying by the top two people. So I'm very, very encouraged by that. And uh, complete disclosure here, I've been adding to my own position um, on Thursday and Friday last week as well. So I might have to be patient on this one, which is fine. I'm not saying, you know, anybody should uh, get overexcited about it. But I think at the moment you can sort of research things at your leisure, can't you? Because despite the big director buys, the share price continued falling, uh, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it's just supply and demand, isn't it? People, you could well be having institutions offloading because uh, they need to fund uh, redemptions, which is uh, always a problem in bear markets. There's not necessarily any logic to the selling. That's what I'm selling. What I'm saying. Um, now, another bear point on Seraphine is that they're clearly overstocked. The balance sheet analysis I did shows that they've got a really big. Uh, level of inventory is far too large. Nearly a year's worth of um, revenues are, are sitting on the balance sheet if you gross it up from cost price to selling price, which is way, way, way too high. But they've obviously done that um, because of supply chain problems. They want to get the gear in, um, but supply chain uh, overstocking, I think, will gradually change for lots of companies into destocking over the next year. And we're, we're seeing um, several companies saying that. Um, but the good thing about Seraphine is that 70% of its product lines are continuity lines. So they're not subject to change by, uh, by fashion seasons. They just continuously sell these continuity lines. So that means at 70%, that means that the stock holding really shouldn't be a problem. They can just gradually wind it down over time. And it means they've got security of supply. They can meet consumer demand. Marketing costs have shot up, but it's still more than profitable on the first customer order. So I like Seraphine. It's drawn down £5 million off the £6 million HSBC facility. But at the year end, which was a few months ago, it had... It was broadly neutral on net debt, uh, so it had, I think, 2.8 million cash, 3 million net debt off the top of my head. So I think it's, I quite like Seraphine, but it is a special situation and it is higher risk. Now, uh, Belvoir, the um, lettings company, I think that one's BLV, we've liked that one for several years at the Small Cap Value Reports. Nice solid H1 update, I don't hold any personally. Um, Tuesday, National World, NWOR. Now, the readers, uh, cajoled me into looking at this one 
I think uh, it's cheap if the cash pile is used well. About half the market cap is net cash. It's the publishing group that used to be Johnston Press, but um, it's it was refloated without the debt and without the pension scheme. So it's like a mini reach, but um, RCH, but without all the um, without all the legacy problems, no baggage, as I've put in my notes here. Uh, so, um, but you've got to remember these things are declining businesses, newspapers, and the digital side, it's not entirely clear where that's going, and they're facing obvious headwinds with customers cutting back on, on advertising at the moment. So I'm not madly keen on National World, but I can see, I can see why people like it, the value investors. Um, uh, Revolution Bars, RBG, this is a, a holding of mine. I'm enthusiastic about the valuation and the, and the potential for the business. Lots going on to fix the business. The, the, the newish CEO has done a great job. Anyway, put out a good update, I thought, for year-end June 2022. This is Revolution Bars. Now, the house broker forecasts 4.2 million adjusted profit before tax, which is a good bit ahead of the market consensus figure shown on Stockopedia. So maybe the Stockopedia forecasts are being diluted by um, a previous older forecast from another broker. I don't know. But anyway, the refurbs are really driving the performance there. It's done 19 refurbs out of its 67 sites in this year just gone. And I think it's doing another 18 in the new financial year. So that, I think... And these are speciality bars that really... Do um, they make their money on Friday and Saturday night and midweek on student nights? They they do trade all day, but it's it's really um, a late night operator where nice young attractive people go to um, get pissed on cocktails and cop off with each other. So that's the um, that's the USP really for that type of late night bar, which I think is different to your mainstream pubs like your Weatherspoons and all the rest of them, which um, a lot of those are actually struggling because, you know, the ordinary uh, average um, punters like you and I probably, uh, you know, are maybe not that keen on going to a pub and spending £5, £5.50 on a pint of lager when we can get a can from the supermarket for 99p and sit out in the garden and not rub shoulders with perhaps people that we don't want to rub shoulders with in pubs so um obviously as meeting places and places to eat of course there's still a place for them but i'm not not generally bullish on on pub chains but revolution bars is different because of those usps and of course so many competitors will be going bust um which begbie's flagged up in their red flag report on friday which i'll come on to in a minute uh revolution bars has got net cash now as well it obviously hugely diluted with two fundraisers so it'll never get back to the old share price but i don't care about the past i'm investing for the future and i think uh, it's great value so i'm 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 enthusiastic about revolution bars as a long-term hold from here and the deals these expanding chains are getting on new sites is incredible i spoke to the ceo of another unrelated bar chain and he they're expanding and he said you know we're getting once in a lifetime deals on new sites and actually signing leases that are going to be really valuable in a few years time once the um once inflation's eroded the rent down 20 30 percent effectively and they're paying a third of the rent on new sites for compared with what those sites were rented at uh, pre-pandemic so there are opportunities as always there are opportunities out there as well as threats 
We've just got to find out which one's which. Tuesday, I also flagged up delisting risk. Now, for small, illiquid microcaps, you've really got to be careful at the moment, particularly where they have one or two dominant shareholders that effectively control the company. You know, a lot of those are going to be saying, well, what's the point in us maintaining a, li- a listing? You know, we're not getting anything from it. There's no liquidity in the shares. There's, you know, there's a lot of costs and hassle associated with being listed. It's a waste of time. Let's delist. Trouble is, when that's announced, you get a 30 to 50% plunge in the share price. So I think we've got to be really, really careful right now. Delisting risk is a big risk for these microcaps. You've got to look at them, in my view, or this is what I'm doing anyway, I'm looking at my portfolio with the microcaps and say, well, why are they listed? Are they going to remain listed? And I always ask management when I speak to, I speak to a lot of uh, company managements now, and, you know, I say to them, are you committed to your listing? Of course, they'll always say yes. Um, But... It's how they say yes that I think you can read between the lines on how keen they are in maintaining that listing. Um, Tuesday, the final one that's been a real disaster is Revolution Beauty, R-E-V-B, I think that one is. Now, that one's, again, absolutely plummeted since it's listed. It put out another profit warning this Tuesday, and it dropped about 57% on the day, and it's carried on dropping, and... When something, what I find is when a small cap drops that much, knee-jerk buying is nearly always the wrong thing to do because there's a reason it, it's down 57%. It's, it's not just, oh, it's hit some people's stop losses, I don't think. I think there's, there's a deeper reason for it. And you often find that reason out when you get a broker note later that day, if you're lucky, which absolutely slashes the forecasts. Which um, Revolution Beauty, I think the the broker dropped its forecast earnings by about two thirds. So that's why it dropped fifty seven percent. Now I concluded on on Tuesday at twenty seven p. I went, through, went did a fairly deep dive on this one, and I said it's not cheap at twenty seven p. It really isn't. And I think it ended the week at about eighteen and a half p. So that was the right call. The thing I really don't like about Revolution Beauty, well, several things. Firstly, it floated at a ridiculous valuation. That factored in a lot of growth that's now stalled. Um, and, but secondly, the audit, audited figures have been delayed a month. Now, obviously, the company says there's not a problem, but the, the, there must be. All the figures wouldn't be delayed a month. And I think certainly the problem I identified um, from its numbers is that it's, again, similar to Seraphine, it's massively overstocked. It's got far too much inventories. Again, about I think about 11 months' worth of sales are in inventories when you gross it up to sales value, which is way, way, way too much. And looking at its website, a lot of the makeup that it sells is clearly uh, fashion-orientated. Uh, they do a lot of um, eyeshadow palettes with, with design input and branding from social media influencers and so on, and TV programmes and all this sort of thing. Well, those are either going to sell or they're not. It probably won't be a middle ground with that. So I'm half expecting Revolution Beauty to possibly warn on profits again uh, as the auditors finalise the numbers. If, I'd be the, if I were the audit uh, auditors on this one, I'd be going through the inventories with a fine tooth comb looking for slow-moving and uh, obsolete products and then making provisions against that. So 
my uh, guess is there could well be a, a hefty um, write-off in the pipeline. There may not be. Everything could be fine. But I don't want to. I don't want to gamble on that outcome. That's uncertain. So I'm sitting on the sidelines with Revolution Beauty. I'll wait to see what the audited num- what the auditors say uh, at the end of the month. Now, incidentally, Jupiter, I think it is, um, is their biggest institutional holder, I think. Um, we've had at least two RNSs from then. They're bailing out, and it looks like they're just selling out at pretty much any price. So I think that's why uh, Revolution Beauty continues to fall. It could be an opportunity, or it could be a risk. I don't know. I don't have enough information. Um, so I'm not going to touch it till I've got more information. Now, Wednesday, we looked at... I, I, actually, Graham looked at Goodwin... GDWN, an engineering group. I like it. I've got a small position in Goodwin for the long term. Uh, I can't speak for Graham, but reading his notes and my own personal look at it, I think we like it. There was one key phrase um, in the announcement, can't remember what it was now, but they said something along the line of, oh, it was in the commentary, the section about energy prices. They said something about how uh, a substantial increase in profitability is in the pipeline. Well, that speaks for itself, and this is a conservative-run family business, so I think that looks very good. We like Goodwin. Good outlook. So, yeah, we like that one. Now, on Wednesday, there was a shorting attack on Victoria, VCP, the Carpets um, Acquisitive Group. Now, I've got no opinion on the shorting attack, um, but it seemed to cause quite a sharp spike down in the uh, share price, which subsequently bounced back. The company seems to have decided not to publicly respond to it, which is interesting. I, I can see the argument for that because... A lot of time, I think companies sort of add credibility to a shorting attack if they do a point-by-point rebuttal of it. And, you know, if people don't believe the company's numbers, then they're probably not going to believe the rebuttal either, are they? Um, So I don't know on that one. I did look at VCP recently, Victoria, and um, I've met Jeff Wilding, um, had a couple of meetings with him in the past. And, I mean, he's a really, uh, you know, smart cookie, very... Very convincing, very um, knowledgeable and so on. I think the, as a reader pointed out though, Victoria's got an unusual, very unusual accounts, very unusual debt structure and convertible loans and uh, um, a relationship with one of its big shareholders is providing sort of some form of funding. And it's, it's really complicated and I just, the deeper I dug into it and the more I realised I don't really understand the funding structure well enough and some of the funding structure looks very expensive debt. So, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't have a strong opinion either way on Victoria, but I'm minded to just um, probably steer clear, to be honest. I wouldn't bet against it, because in the past it's had very strong bounce-backs from uh, from previous plunges. Thursday, uh, next, not a small cap, but... Um, Stores are doing surprisingly well, the, re- the, the general clothing retailer. Now, what they said, it, I think it's got a really interesting read across. They said there's a lot less competition in the high street for clothing. So as one of the last men standing type of thing, they, the stores are doing surprisingly well. I think that's a really important point for read across to other um, retailers. And in fact, Quiz, which has done very well in the last few weeks. I've been bullish on Quiz for, I was about two years too early on that one, but uh, my analysis has been proven correct, I think, so that's good. Um, and I still hold a few. I had to downsize the position because it was in a geared account, unfortunately. So anyway, um, 
so a lot less competition for clothing on the high street because of course all the Arcadia stores have gone BHS is gone you know, lots of lots of the traditional clothing retailers have gone um, also hot weather is a big boost this time of year my days as a CFO I remember you know if you get sunny uh, sunny weather this time of year in particular the first week your sales dip because everybody's out in the parks and the beach but from that point onwards it adds 30% 3-0 to your sales in the sunny weeks compared with a rainy wet and miserable week so weather does influence short term clothing sales but it tends to average out over a full year I think um, very interesting comments from Next about online as well. What they're saying, and I think this is key for me and why I'm concentrating my portfolio more and more in bombed out e-commerce shares right now, is because they're basically confirming my view that online is now starting to return to normal. So the pandemic pulled forward a whole bunch of demand into 2020 and early 2021. That's now annual annualising out. So what you're starting to see now is structural growth in e-commerce is returning, you know, at a fairly modest level. But the idea that these that e-commerce is ex-growth is fundamentally wrong, in my opinion. I think the market is pricing that into a lot of e-commerce shares, and it's completely wrong. I think your people will the move to online. I think will continue, maybe not at the same pace as before. And that's what Next said in their update on Thursday. So it's really worth a look. And and Next also raised its profits guidance seven percent. Counterintuitive, given all the gloomy macro news. Although they are quite cautious on H two. Now, SCS, the sofa company, again, I've got a small position in this, um, put out an update ahead of expectations for year-end in July 2022, so that's good, but there was, they slipped out a profit warning for the current year um, also, and I think it took the market about an hour to realise that actually this wasn't ahead of expectations, it was a profit warning. So early uh, people who were buying early doors when it rose um, should have read the RNS a bit more carefully, I think. So um, I think the bad news is in the price there, so I'm certainly not going to be selling my remaining holding. Long term, I think this is one of many small caps that could easily double. Uh, I don't know the timing on that, though. It could be a couple of years, couldn't it? Two or three years. But doubling your money in two or three years is a pretty good proposition, I think. And it pays generous dividends along the way, and it's doing buybacks. Still got plenty of cash, although that's fallen because as they work their way through the order book, lead time's shortened so the cash pile does reduce. But it's a constantly revolving cash pile. So people who say, oh, it's not really the company's cash, blah, blah, blah. Technically, they're right um, because there's a large deferred income creditor offsetting a lot of the cash. But the point is that situation permanently rotates. Uh, you only, and just can look at DFS's balance sheet and you'll see what I mean. So SCS is still in a very, very comfortable cash position. Um, now, I think some competitors will go bust as well. We're seeing a lot, again, last man standing type of thing. The well-funded listed retailers should uh, pick up market share, even though overall demand is, is likely to drop, particularly for furniture. I think it's too early to really be loading up um, on SCS. Um, but I will be loading up on it at some point. I, ha I was forced to cut my position size over the last year, obviously. Um, I don't think I necessarily got the analysis wrong. Somebody was crowing in the reader comments about how they were bearish about SCS a year ago, 18 months ago. Well, great, you know, great stuff. But the, the whole economy has radically changed 
So I don't think there were any particular company insights in people who were bearish on it 18 months ago. It's just the economy's crapped out. That's why, that's why all these things have dropped in price. It doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with the company itself. I'm trying to avoid uh, crowing about things myself, uh, commenting on shares that have dropped, saying, oh, I told you so. Because the point is, again, in many cases, they've not dropped because... The company fundamentals were bad. They've dropped because the economy's um, done badly, which has pulled uh, pretty much everything that's cyclical or consumer-related uh, down in a, in a similar sort of way. Uh, so I think it's important to separate those two points. So, yeah, you know, yes, people were right about the economy, but they weren't necessarily right about the individual company. Uh, now, Renault announced, RNO announced a big acquisition on Thursday, which is about 37% of the market cap. Now, I actually interviewed um, Robert Purcell, the, the CEO, on Friday. That's on this same website that you're listening to now, Quality Small Caps. Really interesting interview. I don't hold any Renault, and I wasn't paid a fee. I don't charge for my interviews. I just I like to be independent. So um, I think you can't do that if you're charging a fee. Uh, it's, I mean, it's still in- interesting and useful to interview people, but I like I like to be able to say what I like. Um, and um, I'm not trying to catch anyone out. I'm just trying to learn about the business. I just asked six or seven simple and um, relevant questions like about the company's pricing power, how it's dealing with inflation, all the sort of current issues. And I thought Robert Purcell gave very good answers. But, you know, um, have a listen to that. If, I think Reynolds a good little business. I think long term... Um, it should do well. Uh, I'm looking to buy back in at some point. I don't think there's any particular rush, given how bearish the economy is looking. Now, finally, on Thursday, I looked at Sanderson Design Group, SDG. I hold a small position in this personally. Uh, pretty good update, I thought. No idea why the shares fell, because there was nothing untoward in the update. It was in line. Uh, but they did say they were planning for a wide range of scenarios in H2. So maybe that sort of... Um, I don't know, unsettled a few people. But anyway, this is another one very similar to these other, a lot of these other shares I've mentioned where I've no idea what will happen to the share price short term, but I think it's another one that could comfortably double in price on a two or three year view once the economy is back to normal. So I'm, I'm very happy to continue holding Sanderson Design Group. I don't know, I can't time the market with my buys and sells. It's not my skill. I'm not even trying to do it. So I'm really quite happy to con- hold these continuity shares where they don't need to raise money and they've got strong balance sheets. Sanderson's got plenty of net cash, really well run. I think Lisa Montague's a fantastic CEO. She joined a year or two ago and she's really capable hands-on manager, I think. So good management's key at the moment, isn't it? You don't want to be, in my view, uh, buying shares where management don't really know what they're doing and everything's falling apart. Uh, Okay, Friday, I wrote a lengthy piece on macro thoughts in response to the Bank of England raising interest rates up half a percent to 1.75%. Now, I think the press coverage of this has just been diabolical. The BBC, I mean, honestly, what are they like? Thursday and Friday, it's like they're revelling in the doom and gloom. Um, and instead of getting a range of views from experts on, they have one journalist interviewing another of their journalists. It's ridiculous. And, you know, standing there, swaying about, waving their hands all over the place. 
and pointlessly emphasising individual words. You know, the way they go, and uh, the Bank of India has raised interest rates by 0.5%. Why are they, you know, why do they do that? I preferred, you know, the Moira Stewart deadpan or the Kenneth uh, Kendall deadpan, you know, interest rates have risen by 0.5% to 1.75%. That's what I want. I want the facts, not all their, you know, emotional engagement and, you know, because they're slanting it. By saying 0.5%, they are expressing some sort of surprise and appall. Appallingness at this, but 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 the but the key point for me is that interest rates are only one point seven five percent, which historically is laughably low. Now the Bank of England, obviously forecasting inflation, is going to peak at thirteen percent. I I am halfway through reading the uh, Bank of England website article on this. It's really worth a read. It's written in Janet and John language, uh, which is brilliant. I mean, these things should be written in a way that anybody can explain, uh, can can understand them. So, and there was one key chart, which I copied into Friday's um, small cap value report, where they show the breakdown of, of what's causing the 13, or the constituent parts of the 13% peak inflation that they're expecting. Um, and it's really interesting. Only 6% of it is goods and services. The other 7%, so taking it from 6% to 13%, uh, at a you know at a set point at the point where it's forecast to have peaked, that seven percent is due to energy costs. So it seems to me this is an energy crisis. It's not a general inflationary problem, although it's morphing into that obviously because of government um, inadequate response to this. You know, there's no way an average or even let alone a low income family can afford to pay. Utility bills are between three and six thousand pounds a year. It's insanity. So it's obvious to me that the government, hopefully, when Liz, Liz Truss comes in, she looks a shoe in now, according to the betting odds, she's going to have to do something drastic. Uh, and all this talk about, oh, you know, unfunded tax cuts is rubbish, I think, because the tax receipts at the moment will be shooting up due to via higher inflation. It means higher VAT take, it means higher payroll costs. Obviously, the sting in the tail is when all the public sector and benefits rises kick in. So down the road, public spending will be shooting up. But in the meantime, I think there is a gap for them to really do a splurge. I think they should just knock £2,000 off everybody's utilities bills or, or, or channel that to the lower income people or, or skew it more to the lower income people whatever um you know my my argument is well there are about 26 million households two thousand each that's a 52 billion subsidy um it's a lot of money of course it is that's about five percent of the of total government spending these are just really rough numbers but if that brings down inflation from 13 percent to eight or nine percent which it would do then you're going to save three or four percent on all the next wave of public sector pay rises. So you'll re- I worked out you'll recoup about two thirds of that by not having to raise uh, uh, public sector pay as much, and and uh, you know pensions are going up ten percent or something next year, which sounds a lot, but it's only about a thousand pounds. Well, that won't cover the increase just in the gas and electric, will it? And I mean, you know, this is going to cost lives, I think, because pensioners need to generally heat their homes more than um, the rest of us do. Uh, although we all like it nice and warm in the winter, but um, so I think you know I think there's there's scope for major policy errors here, 
And 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 I'm morphing into macro here, aren't I? Now the Begbie's Red Flag report on Friday said uh, the very obvious things that retail, hospitality, and construction, bars and restaurants, and so on. Those are the sectors where they're seeing the most financial dis- distress. Well, no shit, Sherlock. You know, it, we all know that because of those are the sectors under the most pressure. Um, and um, the ending of the rent moratorium, of course, which made paying rent basically optional for shops and bars and restaurants. That ended. The this number of CCJs is shooting up, Begbie said. It takes a few months for it to all work through the court system. But, but you know, you are going to see a huge number of bars, restaurants and retailers, the independent ones, collapse. Um, it's a natural and necessary weeding out process because there's overcapacity, which, of course, is going to leave more terrible for the individuals concerned, of course. But I think these... The people, you know, in those sectors who know they're basically operating whilst insolvent in many cases, it can actually be a relief to just throw in the towel and say, look, we can't carry on. Um, that's the end of it. The sites then go back to the landlords who then relet them on much, much lower rents or the landlords will do deals for the existing uh, occupants if they know they're going to have to write off the rent arrears anyway. Um, it, it, you know, it, may, it makes sense maybe for them to... or them. It also makes sense for them to get in a, a new tenant with a stronger covenant. And this is where a lot of these listed companies, you know, like Revolution Bars, um, XP Factory, uh, various eateries, Brighton Peer Group, um, and what's the other one? Um, uh, Nightcap. These are the smaller cap um, expanding bar restaurant chains, Fulham Shore, um, Host More, which I hold personally. These guys who are expanding are getting amazing deals and they will be i think net beneficiaries of a loss of competitors and opening up new sites that are going to be highly profitable over the next 10 years um, so providing their finances are okay i think these these listed um, expanding chains could be very good investments but probably not just at the moment because nobody wants to invest in them <laughs> uh, oh let's let's run through into the macro points um now, destocking by companies is something I'm st- seeing quite a lot of. Uh, you're seeing that having two effects. Uh, obviously, company balance sheets are bloated with too much inventories in some cases, where they've stocked up because of supply chain problems, so they need to destock. Well, that has a knock-on effect on their suppliers. So you're seeing uh, uh, several companies that supply uh, retailers actually saying, oh, dear, you know, we've had a, a sudden reduction in, in orders. We saw that from Supreme with their lighting division, which which clobbered the share price. And we also saw it from Luceco, L-U-C-E. So think about destocking and inventories more, more broadly and how it might affect companies we own. As always, the best quality companies, and the, which are usually the larger ones, manage this stuff fine, for example, next. But it's, it's easy when you're big because you've got more clout with the suppliers and the shipping companies and so on. Um, it strikes me, though, that the supply chain is beginning to ease. A lot of companies now are saying things are improving. Uh, shipping costs are, are definitely reducing. Shoezone said that their margins are now actually going up because freight costs um, are coming down. And um, you know, a lot of I spoke to a city professional who said to me, you know, all these fa- factories in China are going to be desperate to supply companies in the West. Um, and you know, you could end up with a glut of product and falling prices. So. I'm not. I wouldn't assume that this inflation is necessarily going to persist, um, although it takes a year for the figures to annualise, doesn't it? For lower input costs to feed through, 
Um, now, the market is still acting surprised when companies put out fairly obvious profit warnings. So, you know, I think um, it's still tricky out there. Now, um, NISA, N-I-E-S-R, which is a, a long-standing think tank, they're putting out even more alarming forecasts. I think they're saying inflation peaking at 17%. Now, Begbie said the real world inflation number is much higher than the official figures said. I thought that was very interesting, coming from a respected insolvency practitioner. That was in their red flag report. That was the standout point for me, that they read Begbie's explicitly said they think the government inflation figures are understating inflation already. Um, so what else have we got? Um, so, yeah, we've got this inflation surge coming, and it, it's going to cause a lot of problems. But the market's priced a lot of that in, I think. Uh, And I think we're very much in a market that is still fixated on the short term. I think it's a trader's market. I'm looking increasingly at things that are bouncing strongly from the lows. And it strikes me, um, I think it might be worth selling into some of these big rallies. I know know Volex and um, what was the other one in my portfolio? bounce 40 50% from the lows oh quiz you know i think i think other people are probably going to sell into those rallies um so maybe it's a time to sell on the bounce the big bounces and keep some cash for buying the dips again i don't know i'm i think because the economic recovery now seems to be pushed out um into 2024 rather than 2023 i'm i'm a lot less bullish now on on the prospects of any sort of immediate and V-shaped recovery in the stock market. I think maybe um, maybe we need to pump along the bottom for a while, which means selling the bounces, doesn't it, rather than uh, sort of pyramiding up on the bounces like we do in bull markets. But I don't know. I don't know. But I definitely feel uh, more bearish, given that the economic data has just got uh, a whole bunch worse. Um, but I do remain of the view that I think there's big opportunities in e-commerce shares, but I need to look at them on a very carefully on a case-by-case basis. I have um, increased my position size in Boohoo on Friday. One of the reasons is the business is very dependent on air freight um, and shipping costs, and those are really reducing quite sharply now. And as you go into a recession, there'll probably be a glut of capacity. Uh, so Boohoo should be a big beneficiary from um, falling um logistics costs and they've also got this new strategy of charging for returns so you could see revenues dip but gross margins actually could improve i think on boohoo so i'm i'm starting to feel um there might be a a 50 percent or so bounce in in boohoo and they've annualized all the the tough comps so going forward the um trading updates could surprise on the upside i think i don't know obviously i'm guessing there um Oh, what else? Um, yeah, I think we've covered nearly all of these. Uh, oh, yeah, just on mortgage rates. I looked, again, utter, utter doom and gloom. We're all going to go bankrupt because of high mortgage payments, apparently. Complete tosh. There was some data in the Sunday Times that astonished me last weekend that said of the 15 million, uh, and do verify this data because it's all just from memory, but the 15 million households which were owner-occupied in the UK... Only 7 million have mortgages, according to the Sunday Times. 8 million are owned outright. And of the 7 million mortgages, 6 million are fixed rate. Again, or or discounted rates. So 
If that's right, and I need to double-check that data, then really interest rates going from nothing to 1.75% shouldn't really have much impact at all. And I've checked on Money Supermarket about new mortgage deals, and you can currently, as of this morning, you can get a five-year fixed-rate mortgage at 3.2%. 3.2%. Fixed rate, not discounted. Fixed rate at 3.2% for five years. And that's from the main lenders, uh, Barclays, Lloyds and NatWest. Anyone not taking advantage of that is out of their mind, I think, to remortgage, you know, on a five-year fix, when you, when, you, when you probably know that 20% of that mortgage is going to be inflated away by general inflation in the next two years. So uh, we're going to see, I think, a big transfer of wealth from savers to borrowers over the next few years, providing borrowers can keep their interests uh, rates fixed or low or hedged if you're a company which many of them have done Lot plenty of companies have put fixed rate borrowing uh, swaps in place over the last few years and this is crucial to, to verify in the annual reports to make sure we properly understand the terms of companies borrowings um, so um, but I think that's such a good opportunity for households to lock in uh, cheap fixed rate uh, mortgages now, which I mean, money is being lent at totally irrationally low levels, which probably won't remain the case for that long. I have no idea why they're doing it, but they are. So there we go. Let's take advantage. Let's, let's take advantage of a gift horse. So I mean, I'm having, I'm uh, was chatting to my mum about cashing in her premium bonds because I said, look, mum, you're gonna you're gonna lo- basically lose ten percent of your money every year over the next year or two. Uh, due to inflation, so we're going to put them into her interactive investor account, and we're going to buy some nice cheap value shares, and get some divvies coming in. So um, anyway, I think that's quite enough. So I shall wish you all well. I saw a couple of quite um, harrowing posts actually from Stockopedia reader, readers in the comments section, saying how stressful and upsetting and harrowing really they're finding the current situation watching their wealth disappear down the tube um i'm going to record something about that in one of the forthcoming um webinars uh, podcasts because i've got a lot of experience of losing large amounts of money on the stock market periodically so i do have some fairly unique experience on how to deal with it and it's not easy um and it's painful and People, I, I encourage people to talk about it. You know, get these things off your chest uh, to to amongst the community. I think that's much better than talking to your family about it, for example, because it's just going to make them worry um, and panic. Um, and well, it's up to everybody how much they want to disclose to their loved ones. I think generally, my personal experience is telling family and um, partners and close friends and things is they um it doesn't help them and it doesn't help me so but you may have a different view i just say i just say generally to people i think things oh it's a, you know it's an absolute shit show i'm doing really badly but that's life i'll get it back it'll just take some time that's the sort of thing i say to to the family and just say you know we're gonna have to 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 scale back our spending you know the, the holidays are on hold i'm sorry about that but we enjoyed them during the good times. And, um, you know, there we go. People tend to accept that, I think. And uh, and then just say, look, look at, look at the news. Everybody's in the same boat. That's another way of diffusing any um, unwanted advice or uh, diatribes from people about this. 
I usually get one, you know, well, why don't you just do the opposite of everything you, you normally want to do in the markets? Then we'd be millionaires. <laughs> so I said, yeah, well, I'd just say, yeah, fair point, fair point, and laugh. So anyway, but I'll come up with some more ideas for how to deal with it. One of the other things I do is, I mean, cards on the table here, since last October when my portfolio peaked, I've lost on paper £2 million. And I couldn't afford to lose that. That was essentially a large part of my uh, nest egg for retirement. So it's been a disaster, but it's my own fault. I've made mistakes. Uh, The macro picture's worked out much worse than I thought. I tried to tough it out. I should have just sold when I knew but but you don't gain anything by saying oh I should have done this I should have done that earlier this morning I had a real sinking feeling of impending doom and depression I suppose you could say um when I started to think about the position I was in last summer last autumn this time last year whereas I set I was set up for life really but I just put those thoughts out of my head I put on some headphones and some music listened to a bit of super tramp and uh Shaka Khan, even some Farley Jackmaster Funk, and uh, did a little bit of pottering around on the terrace, watering the plants, and did some housework, cleaned the kitchen, and and started thinking about happy things. And you, I think it's really important not to wallow in the misery and the negatives of this. I cannot change anything that's happened. Margaret Thatcher said in her memoirs, I was listening again to that the other day, when she was asked about, you know, does she have regrets? Does she wish she hadn't done this, that, or the other? She just said, I'm not an introspective or backward-looking person. He said, what's done is done. All we can do is learn from our mistakes. We can't change anything. We've got all of our lives ahead of us. We'll get our money back. There'll be another bull market at some point, and we'll make a fortune again. So uh, we just need to remember to take our foot off the gas and banks and bloody profits next time. <laughs> but... It's only money. The way I look at it is I've got a roof over my head. I've got everything I actually need in terms of physical goods. I can afford to eat. I can afford to put the heating on, unlike a lot of poor buggers. Um, and I didn't actually need all that, that, that two million quid. I wish I could have given it away now to the next generation, which I was, I was planning on doing anyway, actually. So I really feel I've let them down. And I do feel very bad about that. But again... I've just discussed it with them and I've said, you know, I was going to buy you those starter homes. I can't afford to do it anymore. I'm so sorry. And I explained why. And uh, they were brilliant about it. Absolutely lovely. But I'm very, very lucky with my nieces and nephews. They're absolutely wonderful human beings. Um, And, uh, you know, they, they, they understand the situation. So in that situation, I had to be open and honest with them. It's usually best to be open and honest, but... Not always, <laughs> you know. I think sometimes it's better to, to not lie, but to just gloss over the negatives uh, with with some other people. Oh well, uh, the, another coping mechanism I have, and I'm always glass half full with life generally. You have to be. We can't change what happened. I can't get that money back, not any time soon, anyway. I didn't need the money in any case, really. I would have loved to, have, as I said, given more to Zane as well, my um, favourite charity, but. Um, I've put them down for 10% of my estate when I die, so they'll get something regardless. Um, 
I think the other thing is not chasing the losses. The money's gone. There's no point in making bad decisions to try and chase after it. One of the readers a while ago said he was in despair because Boohoo and Saga and a few of the other favourites of mine and plenty of other people had all, you know, done really badly. So he sold everything and just started punting on American tech shares and made 70 grand in two weeks or something. Well, good for you, but I think that was a terrible idea. And I think... I'd like to know uh, if he's carried on making money since he posted that, because I suspect probably not. Um, I think if you start making wild and reckless punting, trying to chase losses, it's a recipe for disaster. I've done that. I'm speaking from experience here. I've done that many times myself. I actually did it in January. I'll tell you the story of that another time. I made an absolute killing in a month, and I lost the lot within another month. But... You know, um, so that short-term punting, unless, you know, you have a consistent long-term track record of being a successful trader, I think, you know, chasing after these short-term gains is probably going to end in disaster for most people who are not uh, experienced traders. So I think it's far better to just accept the losses, make better, more well-thought-out decisions now, rather than doing impulsive things to chase the losses and I look at it now and I just say you know one of my coping mechanisms is just to say that two million quid I actually try and forget that I ever had it that may sound completely ridiculous but I look at my what's left of my spreadex account which used to be well into seven figures it's not now and I just I just put it out of my mind that those figures used to be so much bigger you know the money came and the money's gone I was a short-term custodian of it uh did it really add much to my life, being numbers on a screen? Not really. I had a bit of fun with some of it and paid off a few things and uh, had some nice holidays and things. But it's not the end of the world. It's the people around us who, who matter. And uh, I'm going to go around to Mum's this afternoon and take down some curtains she wants and hoover her astroturf on her balcony and do nice things and spend some time with Mum. Um, that's the stuff that matters, isn't it? Not how much money I've got. So, anyway, those are just some random thoughts. I'll leave it there, I think. I hope everyone's well, and do tell us how you're feeling, and, you know, it's good to share these thoughts within the community, I think, rather than bottling it up and living in a state of abject, uh, not well, fear and, and misery. You know, it's only money, and we'll get it back in the next bull market. Okay, that's it for now. Cheerio.